I don't know if I ever should have started the Gospel of Mark because I just can't see us getting out of there in a year. I just like literally can't. Um, but this morning, that's where we're going to be. And we're moving at like this snail's pace. And if you're wondering why we're moving so slow, it, there's a ton of stuff there. And there's, there was a ton of, I could have like, you know, we said it a couple of weeks ago in, in just talking about it. There was, a, uh, there was literally one, one passage where I had like, I could have just like four sermons. And, and I, while I'm, I, I want to move along, I also want us to have an understanding of what we're reading and having kind of a base knowledge of what we read. My, my biggest concern or my biggest thought for uh, all of this as we push through is to kind of teach you also how to slow down. Like, I, I really believe, in, and, and I'm, I, don't get me wrong, I love those, those uh, systems where you learn the Bible, like you read the Bible in a year. All those things are good things, but I'm going to tell you right now, slow down. What good is it to read it and not know it? Slow down, read the Bible, grab, slow down enough to see what you're reading, to actually understand what you're reading, that it's more than just a story. There's things happening all in the background. There's more to it than just what you've glanced over. So we're moving at a snail's pace because of that. And I do encourage you, as we continue through uh, Mark and as we continue these places, uh, let's, let's start bringing our Bibles. Let's start, get the Bible app. Let's, let's do something on that end because... One of the things as a pastor, if I'm supposed to equip you for the vision God's given you, how can I do that if you're never going to read your own Bible? If you're never going to find value in something so much that you tend to need to carry it around everywhere you go? Because by the way, that's kind of a big deal if you're going to be a Christian. At some point, you need to have a Bible. And I don't mean sitting at your home. I mean, Spurgeon, he used to say about the Christians, even back in his days, this is 1800s, he said, man, some of you have so much dust on your Bible, you could write the word damnation. That's a sad thing. That's a sad thing. But I'm going to tell you right now, you need a Bible. Get you a Bible. Get you a Bible app. Get you something where you're reading the Word of God, reading the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, whatever you have to do to pour it inside of you, to understand it, to get it. Listen, man, I, I, don't, I don't even care if you need it read to you, but get you something that does that then. Get the Word of God in you. It's important as a disciple. Lastly, there's so many resources out there for you if you become a person who studies that never before has there, I mean, you know, I, I am like, I, I feel fortunate a little bit that I grew up before the internet and was saved before the internet. And the reason I feel fortunate is because I remember the day when Google didn't exist and you couldn't just Google anything. You had to go search. And what it did, I'm going to be honest, it created a hunger. Like you find out who the hungry was real quick. Because now that, that the food is all, like you can always search and you can always learn and you can always grow, you kind of take it for, for, for uh, 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 granted now, thank you, and, and, and uh, you, you don't realize how hard it used to be. I remember a lot of the times when I was studying the Greek or the Hebrew of the scripture, I had to pull out, and some of you will remember this one, everybody remembers the Strong's mostly, uh, the Strong's Concordance, you got to pull that thing out. I have a Young's Concordance too, which is before the Strong's, you know, and so... Um, so, some of you remember those, and like you just had to go through a book, and you didn't read another translation because the Strongs and the Youngs don't got any other translations other than the King James Bible. And so, if you ever wanted to know what the translation is, something you had to go back to King James Bible, see what the King James said about it, and then go back to your Strongs, and, and then really look it up again and see what the actual word meant that they were trying to use. And it was good stuff. 
Good stuff, good times that I spent in the Bible. I remember a lot of times where I sat down, and I'll tell you, by the way, a Strong's Concordance is like this thick, and it's a book like this. It's not no tiny book that's real thick. It's a big, giant book that's real thick. I would sit it out on the table, my Bible out on the table, my notepad. You had to have a table at least this big to study the Bible. <clears throat> Nowadays, you can do it all on your phone and copy and paste everything. Some of my greatest devotions, um, especially five or six years ago when I was really like, uh, uh, spent a lot of time doing uh, devotions in my journals. You'd be surprised at some of the greatest stuff I, <laughs> I've, I feel like God has ever given me came off me like going through the Bible app on my phone and then copy and pasting the scripture over on my notes and literally texting my notes uh, uh, as I go through the, the Bible. And, and um, the, the great thing about having the internet at your hands and having these Bible apps that they go through all the strongs. They have all that stuff for you. Why you don't take advantage of it, that's, that's something... That, that's you're going to have to answer for because God's the, listen there should be a hunger that comes from this like you don't show up just to feel good about yourself I hope not because showing up doesn't save you knowing Jesus saves you coming to church doesn't mean that you know Jesus you're going to have to read your Bible you're going to have to do what disciples do you're going to have to read your Bible to know Jesus on your own you're going to have to pray you're going to have to do things all right. So this is why we're moving at a snail's pace. We're hoping to take the things that we hear, the things that we learn, and, and find wisdom in it, which is a way that we can ap- apply that to our life. And if we're not, then we're, we're not, we're not, this, isn't, this isn't working for you. And, and, and we need to figure out what will. And maybe that's, that's part of my gift or maybe my, part of my job too, because what I want like to feed you today, I want to feed you some meat a little bit today. Some of you, you're not going to be able to handle this. Some of you, you don't got teeth yet. You're still figuring out what Christianity is. Some of you are going to struggle in some of the message today, but it's okay. Listen, this is what you strive for. This is what you strive for. You can't stay a baby forever. You can't. All teenagers want to be adults. When they're children, children want to grow up. And then when they grow up, they want to be adults. And then when they're adults, they want to be kids. It's the truth, man. Why? Because when you're adults, you realize how hard being an adult is, and you wish you'd never had the ambition to be an adult. You're like, I wasted my whole youth trying to be somebody I don't want to be right now. (laughs) So let's get started this morning. Mark chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 18 through 22. I'm going to give you a minute to get there. Eighteen through 22. If you're looking for the Wi-Fi, it's tea time. All lowercase, that'll get you into the Wi-Fi. Your app should work, your Bible app. Not Angry Birds, not Facebook, not Twitter. Your Bible app. All right, let's try this. Say amen if you're there. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Mark chapter 2, 18 through 22. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting... Some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with a new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts uh, new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst. The wineskins and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. All right. Stop right here. Because I can't help at this point. Like, I couldn't move any farther, even when I was reading it. Mainly because I'm a pretty analytical person. 
When I say that, like uh, uh, my mind is always calculating everything. Every time I read something, every time I see something, I'm looking for the consistencies. I'm looking for the anomalies. Uh, for instance, when I did a whole, uh, 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 you know, my own personal uh, devotion on Ezekiel, and I'm I'm climbing through Ezekiel. One of the first things I noticed is that sixty something times the Bible says to know that I am God in Ezekiel. So when I started to look at what the overall theme was, Ezekiel, what do you think it was? There's only forty four chapters, but sixty three times it says to know that I am the Lord. So when pestilence comes and all this bad stuff, the reason I'm being this way to you is to what? To know that I am the Lord. The reason I can do this to you, the reason I'm blessing you right now is why? So that you will know that I am the Lord. You see what I'm saying? I mean, like you start to pick up the consistencies. You start to see what's the same over and over. And my mind is, for whatever reason, it it just always does this. And it often helps me. I'm going to be honest with you. So I don't look at it as a bad thing because it helps me oftentimes see what others don't see or maybe what others don't pay attention to. Right? So it was a huge help to me. I'm going to tell you right now, when it comes to applying that to a business or a world application, it's kind of awesome to, be, to have an analytical mind that like plays the numbers, that looks at consistencies in Scripture, that looks at consistencies in life. That looks. By the way, we do this all the time with our friends, right? Because I'm telling you, if you've got a friend that like is good, good, betrays you, betrays you, good, 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 betrays you, after a while, you're like, that ain't worth it. We all do this to some faction. We all do this. All right? So I bring this up because I can't help but notice some of the same kind of thing here, the same gifting, if you will, here. The Pharisees immediately compare the ministry of Jesus to John, John the Baptist's ministry as well as their own. That's the first thing they do. But Jesus' ministry was very, very different. I mean, literally this whole uh, paragraph is written on the precept of why isn't Jesus' ministry like everybody else's ministry. That's the whole part. That's the whole reason we're having a conversation at all. It starts out, why isn't your stuff like our stuff? Why aren't you doing it the way we do it? That's how this whole conversation starts out. Why don't you fast? We fast. Why don't you fast? We're the righteous of Israel. Even John the Baptist fasts. He's, and he's supposed to be your guy too, and yet you don't fast. So the first thing they're doing is they're looking at the anomalies of Jesus and starting to criticize him based off what he does or doesn't do as compared to what everybody else does. You following me? You see, the Pharisees of that day had appointed times to which they fasted. And obviously, John's disciples did the same. But then, if Jesus' ministry is so holy, if it's so right, if it's the follow-up to John's ministry, then why don't they? That's a valid question. The presumption is that if Jesus and his disciples aren't doing what, what they are doing, then something must be wrong. That's the assumption the Pharisees make at this point. Now, my, my thing is, before I get judgmental, have you ever done that? Have you ever presumed wrong? Like you thought you knew it, like this is the way it is. I remember somebody speaking into me one time about the sovereignty of God. I sat with these Dallas Theological Seminary students and brilliant guys, really, really sitting under brilliant men. And they began to challenge me on my idea of the sovereignty of God. And I remember at one point telling them, that's blasphemous. Two years of studying later, I'm embarrassed. Because some of the things they were saying was just absolute truth. But then why doesn't everybody I see or I talk to talk about these things or hang out with these things or say these things? See, I was doing the same thing. I was doing the same thing. I just assumed this is the way it is. Why? Because that's what I've been told. That's what I can see. That's what I... It's not what the Word of God said. So I've done this. Have you ever, I mean, have you ever presumed that your way or your thought or your theology was the only one that was right? Only to find out later? Listen, whether through experience by conviction or the Holy Spirit that you were flat out wrong? Because I have, man. I'm not beyond that. Can I tell you, it's humbling. 
it's humbling to be wrong. One of the things, uh, I wish I had Pastor Robert here to tell you. One of the things Pastor Robert will tell you about me is that I am the most stubborn and can be so bullheaded about something and, and, and totally, like, make you angry. But, but one thing Pastor Robert, and he has said this to me, he goes, the one thing he likes about it, the reason we're great friends. He goes, but you'll say you're wrong if you're wrong. And you'll say you're sorry if you're wrong. Because I have been humbled and humbled by God many, many times about being wrong. Somebody asked me one time, so I said, you be careful, because I think sometimes you just want to be right more than you want to be holy or, or be righteous. And I'm like, there's, I'm human. I, I absolutely at times want to be right more than anything. But you know what God did to help me with that? Uh, he gave me a wife. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest thing about joy in my life is God shows me through my wife at times when I am wrong. I'm not saying she's always right, but I'm going to tell you it's humbling for her as well when she's wrong. Because both of us want to be right in any argument that we're in. But I'm telling you, marriage is not about your happiness. It's about holiness. But that's another sermon. Listen, I've come to a place in my life when I disagree with someone, that when I disagree with someone over Scripture or whatever, that I tell them right now, this is the way I see things. This is the way I see things. God might convict me differently in the future. And I am open to that. But right now, this is the path that I'm on. When somebody tries to correct me and tries to say, listen, I, I receive from you. But know this, I can only give, I can only do for what I see right now. When God begins to convict me, and maybe he's planting that seed of conviction through you into my heart right now, because I will go back and ask the Lord, and I will go study, and I will go find out. This is why I listen to criticism, good and bad, because sometimes I have found that my enemy often tells me things that my friends won't. Because what I want to be is righteous with the Lord. What I want to be is right with God. What I want to be is in the way of the Lord. That's where I want to be. And if it means being wrong, praise God. Amen? Amen. It's humbling. It should create an openness uh, for us to the things of God. Paul said that we should test, test everything. So test it. Test things in life. Pray over it. Ask God about it. Then don't be so quick to judge others. Do this before you speak about it. That way you don't look like an idiot. Been there, done that one too, guys. Again, just as much as I've carried the title pastor, I've also carried the title uh, the title of idiot as well. Like I said, it's humbling. The one good thing about this entire scenario, though, with the Pharisees and Jesus, though, is it often gets us uh, questions, and Jesus loves to answer. And anytime we get to see Jesus interact with humanity, it's a good thing. Answers enlighten us to the truth. And in this case, Jesus is eager to present for, for them something not only for them to chew on, but for us as well. Jesus tells them this, real simple, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And this is, listen, this is a prophetic word kind of spoken here. They, they, it could have been something that was very hard for them to understand, but I, I, don't think it, I, don't, I don't really think it was. I mean, he was saying a lot of words here, and, and, and in one side he's referring to himself as the groom about a wedding that will take place. But this isn't the first time they've heard this kind of talk either. And if you remember, John the Baptist also referred to Jesus as the bridegroom. In John 3, 30, or 28 through 29, it says, You yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. This is John, who they just said, hey, even John's disciples, right? So we know they know John. All right, now this is John's actual words. I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. This is the foretelling. This is it. John the Baptist is telling him who he is. 
It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Now listen, whether they understood this or not, we, we really don't know. We Obviously, they don't understand it, but we're sure that they heard this before. Right? How many times has that been you where you've heard something before, you just didn't understand it, you just kind of passed it away as nothingness? Right? Until it comes back at you, and you're like, oh, I remember back when they said this, and this, and this. Now it hits me. All right? From John speaking about the bridegroom to Jesus referring to himself as the bridegroom. This reference is made all throughout the New Testament as Jesus will marry his bride, the church. This is who he died for as recorded through all the gospels and the epistles. If Jesus is the groom and he is physically here prior to his atoning I do, right? Because that's what's going to happen at the cross. The cross is an I do moment, right? Then this is the bachelor party, right? This is the celebration moment. I am here, man. This is right before the wedding's going to happen, right before I say I do, because I'm going to cover my whole marriage in blood. It's about to happen. I'm going to fall. I'm going to finish this thing through. You're going to see till death do us part. Uh uh-uh. uh. Death ain't going to part us. It's a time of celebration. So, those that are traveling with them, do you realize they're the best men? That's what they are. These men and those who are traveling with Jesus are referred to here as the wedding guest. I've yet to see or hear about a wedding where anyone fast. I haven't seen one. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff we do for weddings. We dress up like Star Wars. We do some weird stuff for weddings. Married on top of mountains, married in rivers, married in the ocean. We do weird stuff. But I've yet to see anybody fast at a wedding, right? Quite the contrary. Weddings are usually all celebrated with food and drinks of some sort. The expectation of your guests to fast will never enter into the equation. Why? Because it's time for celebration. And even more so with Jesus. You see, if it's Jesus uh, is who he says he is, then over 2,000 years of prophetic word from God has now come to actual life. All the promises of God have been birthed into a Savior who will do what we could not do, which is atone for what we could never atone for, love in a way we could never love, and live in a way we could never live. He would make an eternal way for us to heaven to be where the Father is. It's a big deal. So no, this isn't a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting, amen? But this analogy is kind of wasted on men with no sight. By the way, don't it feel like that a lot? You ever witness to somebody and you feel like I'm talking to the wall? Some, some things are just wasted on men, man. They got ears, but just because you have ears doesn't mean you hear. Ask a deaf person. They got ears. I don't mean they can hear. Blind people have eyes, but I don't mean they can see. Even spiritually, that has big, uh, big ramifications. It's wasted. How many times have we been told the truth to something and just not believed it? So Jesus explains it more. Because that's what it is, and he knows it. Right? By the way, as much as Jesus always is talking bad about the Pharisees, there's every chance he gets to minister to them, he does. This is loving your enemy. Those who would, he would eventually seek to put him on the cross and put him up there. He never didn't take an opportunity to, to witness to them and to talk with them, to explain to them. Now, whether they heard it or not, he knew. He knew. But we benefit from it. Every time he engages them, we benefit from it. Jesus explains it more. He says, right? He says, besides, who would patch old clothing with a new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. <coughs> now, when I was a kid... You used to be able to find denim patches. 
All right, we got, like before it was cool to get holes in your pants and buy jeans with holes in your pants. You should just get holes in your pants from playing. Right, it's a phenomenal idea. Uh, playing is a neat thing. Teenagers, I'm going to talk to you specifically. Kids, I'm talking to you specifically. Playing is what exists outside your TV and your video games and your cell phone. When you actually used to play, like my mom literally would come like on Saturday after working uh, uh, long hours all week long. She would just be like, hey, y'all are going out to play. She literally <laughs> throw it, like push us out the door on a Saturday at like 8 o'clock in the morning, lock the door, and maybe we'll let us in by 2. I'm serious. Like, we're hungry. You'll live. Nothing tells me you're starving out there. Right? And be like, you know, I, don't, I mean, they would sleep in. They would whatever. I mean, like, they'd hang out. They'd clean the house. They'd, but anything where they didn't have us yelling, you know, doing whatever because we're bored. Right? And so we'd go out and play, and we fished every morning. Every morning we fished. And, and we went and played this, played that, and it never failed. Like, first of all, everywhere we wanted to go anyway was never on our property. So we were always trespassing all our neighbor's property. And we would have to jump the barbed wire fences. And if you know barbed wire is going to get caught because kids are not like good at stuff, you know, like adults are. Adults are like, man, they pull their knees out and they break the barbed wire open, you know, but kids were like, oh, whatever, and you rip it all the way down. And so my mom was always having to patch stuff, and so they had these like denim patches. I mean, they might still have them, but in today's world where people buy jeans with holes in them, I just don't know why you would sell denim patches today. I mean, I might sell you my jeans once I put the holes in them, and you can thank me for how awesome they are, you know? Uh, but I remember, you know, with family, three boys, it, it seemed that we always had like a stack of these things. And, uh, and the, 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 the problem was this is that when we wore jeans so much and, and beat them up so much, you sweat in them, you everything. And at, over time, like them jeans ain't going to stretch no further. By the way, we didn't do stretch jeans. There wasn't no like, uh, what is it? Jeggings or whatever it are. Oh, yeah, that stuff didn't exist, guys. And plus, if it did, it only was on rock stars, okay? No, nobody like ever, no normal people wore that stuff, all right? <clears throat> and, uh, and so like you, they would put those patches on and, um, and the, the, problem, the problem was is that over time, um, the, that it, would, it would look like a fix. I mean, when you ironed it all out, you know, they'd iron that denim patch on, you know, it's like a different color, and it's weird looking a little bit. But like when you're like, you know, eight, it's like, who cares? I'm going to rip it off anyway. It doesn't matter. Like, we'll see if it holds up, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and the problem was is that over time you'd wash it and that thing would get weird. It would make your knees look weird. Like you could never flatten iron that thing again. It is not. It's like from that point on, it had like weird creases or something in it, man, because it would all bubble up right there at the deal, right? And why? Because that denim patch is like a brand new piece of material and all your other stuff, it's wore out. So while this denim patch is shrinking, it's trying to pull in all that old material and everything is getting weird and, and messed up. And, and uh, it, it just seemed like to me it just got worse because the stuff that's worn in and the stuff that's new just didn't fit, right? Now, in Jesus' day, right, this is obviously an unacceptable practice. You don't patch older clothes with new material, else it'll rip away as it washes and it shrinks, right? That's the whole idea of the whole thing. It would. Eventually, we'd wear that thing off. That's why my mom had stacks. Right? She's like, we're going to make this work again. I'm going to get my money's worth out of these pair of jeans. You know, you'd have to find, if you want to really fix it, you'd have to find old material to do the patch job. Now, I can say we did this, too. We would keep old pairs of jeans around, cut out old pairs of jeans. My mom would just patch it up. She's like, what do I care? These are not your, like, school jeans. These are your, like, your play outside. You can, like, destroy these things. They're fine. You know, and they were literally patched up with multiple patches of other jeans is really what they were. Like, I might have a pocket on my knee. Because that's, that's just awesome. Because it's thicker. 
You know, that's logic, guys. That's how logic worked back then, I guess. <laughs> this is the 80s, you know. Uh, but, so, but, like, to do this was not right. And do this, is, this is not how they did things. They put older material with older material. You didn't put new material with old material. It was an obvious statement to make to the Pharisees. It was understandable knowledge, at least on the surface. Under the surface, there are some spiritual applications here, such as it's hard for that which is part of the old way to take part in a new thing. That's what he's saying. Right? I didn't say impossible, guys. But listen again to the next statement by Jesus. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Well, why? Believe it or not, my grandma. I have a story here. My grandma made wine. Uh, I remember like the two things that she had in her house all the time was a case of something like Lone Star beer or like the cheapest beer you could get. And she had three bottles of homemade wine going on at any given time in the house. And you always knew. And the reason I knew it was wine when I was little was because I would always ask, why are there balloons on top of it? Because this is what she would do. She'd take a little bit of sugar, take a little bit of juice, take a little bit of yeast, stick it in a bottle, stick that balloon over it, Right. Some, some of you are like, I didn't know, I wasn't old enough to really understand how all this worked at the time. But the idea was, is as the wine fermented, the balloons would fill up with air. Now, apparently, according to my parents, she had her favorite three balloon wine, which is where the balloon pops three times. She'd let it sit and ferment and ferment and ferment. I'm thinking that thing's probably like paint thinner, right? I mean, like, I don't know. I was too young to understand. I didn't drink all of you, any of that stuff. But like, I remembered as a kid because I thought, why you got the balloons on the bottles and why do they inflate themselves? I mean, that's neat when you're a kid. You know what I'm saying? It's like, ooh, science project. Don't really think, hey, my grandma's alcoholic. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you don't think like that, right? But she's got these, bo- she's just like making this stuff, like the case of beer in the fridge isn't enough. You just sometimes you need homemade wine, you know? And, 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 and here's the thing is, it's not a lot's changed when it comes to making wine. It's pretty much like the same idea. You put a few ingredients, you let it ferment, these things happen, right? And so since the days of Jesus didn't have any glass bottles, they used leather bags or what they called wineskins. These bags would swell according to the amount of fermentation. They didn't have balloons and bottles. They used the bags, right? And leather kind of will swell. Leather will grow to a certain extent, right? And so according to the amount of fermentation needed, uh, the older the wineskin, the more it had to be stretched to capacity, right? The older the wineskin means it, it had been through uh, some liquor there. It, it had seen some time, you know, and uh, 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 poured a few drinks. Now, if you were to put new wine into that older wineskin, it wouldn't be able to handle it. It has nowhere else to grow or stretch anymore. It'll probably take more than the new wineskin bag. But the problem with that is that it will burst it eventually. So what's Jesus trying to say? Because he sure ain't telling you how to make wine. For all, for all those who think and probably look at that as like, well, see, Jesus talks about wineskins and well, not, not exactly that easy. But Jesus, what Jesus is trying to say is this. Maybe a couple things here he's actually trying to say. New wine will never taste as good as the old wine to an old wine skin for sure. That's one of the things he's trying to say. Now, listen, that doesn't mean it doesn't have a place in the ministry. Hear me right now. As a matter of fact, if this is a spiritual analogy, then every, time, every wine has its time and its place. This would also mean one is not better than the other, that there's simply a time and a place for it. This is uh, why some of us long for something that's already passed, and yet some desire for something new. Just how it is, guys. How much can you grow? At some point, the stretching is going to hurt you, by the way. Any new thing is going to stretch you. 
old or young. It's going to be painful. I like how Gerald Brooks always says this, and I'm a firm believer that this, this is a truth. It's not, I would call it like probably pulled from biblical uh, points, but I would say this is a true statement, that you only grow to the level of your pain threshold. How much pain can you take will coincide with how much of the new thing you get to partake of. I would absolutely say that. If you want a new thing, God, to do you a new thing, you need to pray that when the pain comes of God stretching you to do the new thing, because by the way, for you to become worth drinking, you're going to have to ferment a little yourself, which means there's going to have to be a time, a gestation period where growing is going to take place before you, you, that you're poured out into this world. So know that it's going to be painful. Two, I think some wine only gets better with age. Amen. Amen. Now, my young people are like, what? I don't know about that. Come on now. But here's the thing is, young wine will still hold some potent effects. But listen, guys, older wine tastes better. <laughs> like that or not, that's, if, if God is making spiritual analogies using wine, Jesus, then some of these things hold true. There's something about the value of wine that's had the proper time to expand and ferment. By the way, wine that ages is worth more money. It has more value because it's reached what? It's gestation period. It is now what we would call full. It is full now. Now it's ready to be what? Poured out. Are we listening? That's good stuff right there. New wine in this, in this scenario basically represents this, a new thing that God wants to create and perform. That's what he's talking about here. This is the new thing. I know what you're used to is the old thing, but this is the new thing. This is the new wine. This isn't the old wine. Not to take away from the old wine. The old wine had a season. The old wine had a purpose. But this is the new wine that's being poured out. A new wine that's being poured out needs new wine skins. Doesn't make the old thing or the old wine bad. The old wine had a season. There was one day where the old wine was the new wine. The application is that Jesus is doing a new thing and only new vessels can handle the new thing. Thus, another reason that the Pharisees can't and don't understand it. It's not for them. Sometimes God gives a word and it's not for you. It's a good word, but it doesn't mean it's for you. That's why you ever notice when somebody, there'll be always somebody come up or always somebody think, man, today they're talking to me. And it'd be like only like two people in the whole congregation will ever say that usually to a pastor. You know, it felt like God was talking straight to, to me. Then maybe God was talking only to you. Maybe he was talking only to you. And so there, the, the frustration, I think, even in pastors that say, man, I feel like nobody listens. Maybe it's not for everybody sometimes. Maybe it's for me to hear myself out loud so my own heart can be conditioned to the Lord. It's just good for us to hear a word from God. It's good for us to hear a prayed over word. It's good for our ears to hear spiritual things. Jesus wasn't... Uh, uh, just starting a new movement. He was starting something that was going to go on forever, and to do this, he needed new minds. You can't have a reborn church without reborn people. That's where the Pharisees is going to get off on that track. Because remember when he asked the man, you must be reborn, Nicodemus is like, what? Huh? How you... There's only one time we're born into this world. Right? They don't understand it. Why? Because it is still a new wine that God is constantly pouring out. I wish, like there's coming the day, make no mistake, that the wine that I have in me that I'm pouring out right now will be the old wine. And that is okay. That's okay. 
There'll be a time for new wine. My, my job is to help pour the ingredients to make new wine. My job is to build up wineskins. I'm, I'm sewing wineskins together. Why? Because as more people are born into the kingdom, there's new wine coming. I'm sewing wineskins. I'm sewing on people. I'm sewing people up. Why? So they can hold what God has for them. Amen? Amen. Right? The Holy Spirit is often always doing new works. Why? Because Jesus is a living water. The Bible says, anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into glory. But that day is over because Jesus has come and he is gone and the Holy Spirit is here now. And it's pouring itself out like living water and what he needs are vessels. And since it's always this new thing, there's always new water coming out, always out of the spout. The, your, the, 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 what we have to do is get up underneath there and constantly be flowing in it. And it's going to grow us, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be painful, but this is what we have to do. And listen, with every generation is the chance, the opportunity to do something new. And I think Jesus is constantly doing new things to reach us with his love, grace, and mercy. Each generation needs a new wineskin. Can't be the same stuff. I'm going to tell you that some generations are better than others. I wish it wasn't that way, but you can look in the Bible and you can see that some generations were better than others. Some were. Some fall by the wayside. You realize there's 700, I think it's 700 years between Old Testament and New Testament. I would call that generation the faceless, nameless I mean, no hearing, deaf, blind generation. There's no voice of God in their time. There's no voice of reason, no voice of the Scripture, no voice of anything during that time that we can see. I mean, for all purposes that we know, between 700 years, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, is nothing but hiding. We don't know. But I tell you what scares even the most all preachers who study the Bible, the fact that God's voice is nowhere to be heard. Where are the men who could hear God's voice? Where are the men? Where are the prophets? Where do they go? And just like that, they're not there. I think that's the scariest thing there is, is to one day all of a sudden God shut up. And we don't know, then we're left to our own devices. So that by the time we catch Jerusalem again, after all the Nehemiah, after all the Ezra, after the Isaiah, after all this thing that seems soundingly okay, and all this, it seems like everything could be going good, they're under Roman oppression when we find them again. Every generation needs a new wineskin. This doesn't defame the old. Rather, it adds value to the old generation. You know why? Because the new generation ain't going to know how to, what to do with the new wine. So who do they look to? Well, what did you do with the wine God gave you? So they, they seek out the older generation for wisdom. Hopefully. In your naiveness at times, you can forget to do that. But hopefully. New wine makes you appreciate the old wine because it takes time for new wine to fully ferment. That's why the old wine still tastes good while God's doing a new thing. Because you're still sipping off that which was old, which, by the way, we kind of do still today. And one thing, I've always been a person that says, you know, I've, I've listened to too many gray-haired individuals tell me about how things were, how seemingly uh, God moved in miraculous ways. And I've, I've, I've read uh, historical, you know, facts about how churches were experiencing some crazy, uh, uh, wonderful things, you know, 40, 50 years ago. 
And the older generation, me telling me about when they was kids, they would just sit there and lay on the pew and they would have church for all night. And nobody ever thought about going home. And you'd listen to all the Jericho March stuff. And God was doing this crazy thing when ministers didn't have all the training, when ministers didn't have conferences to go to. All they had is their Bible and relying on God to give them a word. And, and it was so seemingly simple. And yet they had such a powerful move of God. Today we have everything and we don't have the powerful move of God. So one thing the new generation and the new wine could use right now is a little taste of the old wine to see what that was like and give them something to be expired too. I don't know about you, but I am ready for a new thing. And I hope you are too. I believe with everything within me that the very thing we're trying to do right here, right now, is the more important thing I will do in my lifetime. Can I tell you that? This thing, this, this church thing we're doing right now, it's not about Mosaic Community Church. It's not about that. By the way, the underlying thing that we're trying to do here is figure out how to return to God. When God, who says consistently through the Old Testament, return to me, and he also says consistently in the New Testament, the other word for return in the New Testament is repent, which means what? Come back to me. Repent. Come back to me. Quit all this stuff, this nonsense. Quit it all. I believe it's the most important thing we will do. Most important. Listen, above Church growth above church name or popularity in this town. We will be about Jesus Christ and discipleship. Even if it means if it ever gets out of control, I will shut the doors and we will quit this and go back to the homes. That's what will happen. Because there's, we're no good to this world as some organization of popularity. We're no good to this world. Listen, if, we, if that was the case, we'd already be winning our country. Our country is more divided than ever. We have big mega churches everywhere. You know, we're all the, like the majority. I, did, I said this a while past, you know, the biggest churches we have, there's like 60, I want to say like 60 or 70 mega churches, over, over a thousand between Dallas, Houston, and uh, Austin. All three of them are pro-abortion. I mean, not the churches, but the cities. All three of them are crime-ridden. All three of them, man, are, are caught up or lost in homosexuality. Unbelievable. Like, unbelievable. You know what I see? I see towns full of churches where they make no impact whatsoever. By the way, I've, you, you tell me, when you read the Bible, is this what you understand when Jesus said that he was the yeast? You just put a little bit of yeast in there and he would overtake the whole place? You tell me, is that biblical? To be that many churches and not an impact? And if you don't question at some point, then something's wrong. If you can't see that, you're not reading, you're not discipling. If there's not a hunger, by the way, I don't say that to point out somebody that's wrong. I say it because of what hurts me, what makes me cry, what makes me deeply saddened and burdened, what makes me have a hard time sleeping. For whatever reason, I keep getting up at like 1.30 or 4 o'clock. It's one of those two. And I get up and I'm, 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 I'm upset at night because these things bother me. And my question is like, do I, and this is where I feel alone, man. Why don't they bother you? I don't know about you, but I'm raising my kids. To, I, I want to have grandkids one day. I, mean, I do. I want to I live long and enjoy my life with my, my wife and my kids, my grandkids and things like that. Have futures for my kids. I didn't have kids and not have futures for them. All right? But I don't want to hand them over a world where I just sat back and lived comfortable and did nothing and watched it go down and criticized it the whole way without doing anything. I won't be that person. I will, I'm going to go to my deathbed knowing that I did everything I could. I left nothing on the table. Maybe I get that from the Marine Corps. Maybe I get that from my parents. I don't, you know where I like to think I get it? I get it from Jesus, who went to his death and even raised from the dead to keep preaching the same song. 
And I'm going to preach it to I'm blue in the face. We are called to return here. To go back to a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Where you hurt for the things that he hurts for. And it's not about how much you come on a Sunday. That's made up by the American church. It was supposed to be how you live. You know what they said that they knew the disciples of Jesus by? By their love for one another. You know all of the criteria that says that we belong to in Acts 2.42? Was that they gave themselves to the word of God, to prayer, and to having a meal with one another. That is the church as first developed in Acts 2. Everything it becomes after it is all because of problems. And we're going to have our share. Any church filled with people is going to have problems. But we go back to those same principles. I'm going to tell you right now, you won't have enemies in the church when you pray for the people in the church. Because God will move your heart towards them. And as you pray, can I tell you, your heart will be moved towards the heart of God so that even your enemies become your friends. And your love for them will change you. God's love for them will change you. God wants to do a new thing here. I firmly believe God wants us to return, to let go of everything that we, you know, like the, I love the song, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I'm so sorry for what I've made it. So sorry. God is calling his people to return. And it's time to explore what that really is. Here's what I think, though. I think it means change. Change in spiritual awareness, which translates into becoming a a devoted prayer warrior. The funny thing is I hear that word throw out warrior, and I'm thinking, I don't think you understand what that word means. Because a warrior means you're actually going to fight. You're going to spend your time. You're going to devote yourself. Man, the, 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 you're going to train. I mean, I, I, when I, when I, I feel like I took the mantle of warrior when I was a Marine for a time. And I'm going to tell you right now, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. So when you call yourself a prayer warrior, if you're going to call yourself that or be referred to that, I hope you really look at it. <laughs> I hope you really are getting up disciplined every morning and praying. Can I tell you right now, if you're cranky the rest of the day and mean to everybody, uh, you ought to check your prayer life. How can you hang out with God and hate everybody the whole day? Because you got up early. You can't resent God for getting up early. Come on now. I also believe it'll be change in spiritual discernment. It'll help us in knowing and living in a way that is right and not just giving it lip service. A lot of people give lip service to the way that's right, but they don't actually live in a way that's right. Here's the la- this last little thing uh, for part of the change is this, cultural purity. Can I tell you this is something that's been on my heart lately? separating ourselves from the things of this world and letting go of the subtle distractions of life to pursue more time with the Father. One of the biggest challenges, I was telling somebody at my work today, and he had such a hard time understanding what I'm saying, and maybe you will too, but one of the books that I read a long time ago, and it's just been on my heart. I don't know why, lately. I think it's just where God has taken me because I really believe in this, this idea of return, what God is telling me is that God wants me to pursue a culture of purity where I set myself aside. And, and not to say that I don't to a degree, but not as much as like maybe I'm being challenged to. One of the books I read was Set Thy Trumpet to the Mouth. <laughs> if you haven't read it, you might be glad you haven't. Because it is an old book written by David Wilkerson. And uh, it's God waking him up and giving him a dream. And in the dream, like, this is why basically David Wilkerson doesn't own a TV doesn't watch movies, doesn't watch TV, doesn't watch, he gets his news from newspapers or people telling him stuff because he spends all his time reading God's word or in the Bible. 
And he might read a few other books from people he knows. But that's about it. And, and he comes off to us as strange. And he comes off to us as, like, weird. That's kind of weird. You don't, like, really culturally immerse yourself in anything. But you know what else David Wilkerson was known for? Being a man of God. Yeah, you listen to his sermon. Let's see if you don't cry. Listen to his sermon on anguish. Let's see where your heart goes to. If you aren't torn to pieces, man, you ought to check yourself. His words are so weighty. Why? Because when you spend that much time with the Father, when you spend that much time reading His Word, when you spend that much time with God, you are all, you all of a sudden the things that hurt your the, the things that burden God or hurt God or the things that trouble God begin to be the things that trouble you. You begin to weep over sinners like God weeps over sinners. Why won't you hear me? Why won't you listen? Can you hear me calling? I'm calling you. But they turn a deaf ear, and all of a sudden that hurts your feelings. That they turn a deaf ear because you just want what God wants, which is what to rescue them. That's all you want. Can I tell you? I'm challenged there. To set myself apart. To not be like the cultural norm. Well, then you won't know like what to preach on. How are you ever going to do these sermon series where we talk about movies? And how are you going to do it? Well, we've got enough entertainment in the church. You don't need any more. This isn't the, gym, this isn't the Tonight Show. <laughs> this is supposed to be the Word of God. So, truthfully, this is how it's, if one was supposed to teach, and this was the gifting that God has given me, guys, that I'm supposed to be able to preach in such a way and have spent time enough in, in, with God in such a way. It's like the prophets of old. Anytime you hear them preach or anytime you hear in the Bible that Jesus speaks or teaches, that it was such word that it moved your heart. Not because I preach so well, because I've spent so much time with God that I can say like Jesus said, I'm only saying to you what the Father has said to me. I'm only doing what I saw the Father do. But you got to spend enough time with the Father to understand those things. To do what no one has done, we must do what no one will do. That being said, the G, uh, uh, Jesus has—he's uh, already risen and ascended. The time for fasting and prayer is now. The wedding is over. That's happened. He's married to the church. He's given his life for it. He died and he was resurrected for her. If we're—it's time to. If any time right now, now's the time for fasting. Now is the time for prayer. Right? Because Jesus has gone to be with the Father. One day he will return. And when he is with us, there will be no more time for that. We won't have to pray. We can talk face to face one day. Amen? Our job as his disciples is now to do as he did, which translate into praying as he did, fasting as he did, helping people as he did, and even teaching people as he did. That's our responsibility. That's it. Can I tell you something? Amongst all the church mottos and all the visions that you see out there, there is no church vision that trumps Jesus' vision for the church. And it's this. In case there's any question about loving God and loving people or uh, we aim to do this or blah, 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 whatever that is for you, there is nothing that trumps this one. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And listen, it doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. That's the mission of the church. You can add whatever you want to that. The poor, outreaches, all that other stuff. That's mandate number one. I don't care how many shoes we hand out. At the end of the... At the end of the day, it's going to be how many people love Jesus now and have devoted their lives to getting, giving themselves to prayer and to fasting. How many people have given themselves to the gospel and to the reading the word of God? How many have done that? That's where we should be graded. 
Listen, I'm all for doing outreach. I'm all for reaching people. Like I said this morning, God's put the police department on my heart. I want to do something for Christmas for them. But make no mistake about it. You know what I really want to do? Get them saved. That's what I want to do. His promise is this, that during this seemingly impossible task, he says this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's have the worship come back up here now. Can I tell you something, guys? The church is only as strong as its prayer life. We've been given one job, pretty simple. That's it. Uh, despite all the mottos, the mission statements, the business-like stuff, pewing from the pulpit today, that's the one thing we got to do. That's it. And don't worry about nothing else. Worry about this one thing. Right? We're to make disciples. Jesus used the words born again to describe them. So newborns only come from intimacy. That's where it comes from, guys. Intimacy is found in prayer and in fasting. That's where it's found. The great thing about worshiping in the Lord is that it gets our mouths in the right posture. We're about to worship the Lord just a little bit with the hope that our hearts will line up to the right posture as well. See, when we begin to worship, we lift our hands. Our hands, when we lift them, it's really just a symbolic gesture of I surrender. It doesn't make you, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. But that's really all it is. It's a symbolic gesture of saying, I'm surrendering to you, God. What we're trying to do when we worship is this. We're just trying to get our hearts lined up with the things that we're singing. We're trying to get our hearts lined up with the things God is saying to us. Because listen, you don't need me to speak a, a word of God into you. God can speak into you just fine. All you got to do is listen and be attentive to the things that he says and be open to God speaking to you. You know? And, you know, the irony is that, you know, that Spurgeon had tens of thousands of people get saved in his church and he never held an altar call. I heard a guy say the other day, the altar was man's invention. The church altar today as we know it today, not the Old Testament where Abraham built it and those things, but the altar today as they understand it, it's like man's invention. Us trying to make it easier. Listen, I don't care how anybody meets Jesus so long as they do. That's all I care about. I, I I don't think I got saved in an altar. I got saved at somebody's house when they said, hey, man, do you know Jesus? And so I go through the whole prayer thing, and that really didn't do it for me. Like, I said the words, and I went to church. But it was, I've said this story many times. Three old women began to pray over me in the middle of a church aisle. We didn't make it that far to the altar. We were just in the aisle there. And man, they prayed over me, and I've never been the same. You asked my wife, I have never.